Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream, Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing pelvic inflammatory disease. As ever, all information is correct at time recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello once again. Uh, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the teaching fellows in emergency medicine. Okay, uh, so welcome to the Pelvic Inflammatory Disease, or PID, uh, podcast. Uh, predictable first question, uh, Anna. What is PID? Um, so, by, def- by definition, it's any uh, kind of infection, really, of the upper female genital tract. So that is the uterus and fallopian tubes, essentially. So endometritis, salpingitis, if you wanted to kind of give it more specific terms, but basically yeah, that kind of encompasses what we're talking about, mm. upper genital tract. With the suffix itis. Itis, upper genital tract itis. There you go, that's a good term. <laughs> okay, uh, so um, what symptoms therefore is a patient with PID likely to have? So classically, they will present with lower bilateral abdominal pain, mm-hmm. um, so kind of a, like pelvic pain really, so yep. quite low down. Um, they may have a vaginal, an abnormal vaginal discharge, could be an offensive or maybe just you know increased um, quantity vaginal discharge. Um, they may have pyrexia, um, but actually that's not that common. Okay. They may be septic, so some patients with PID can go on to develop abscesses, which I think we'll kind of come to, and they, yeah. in fact, can you know, be very unwell, show signs of sepsis. Mm. Um, actually, a lot of patients, the symptoms can be quite vague, mm. um, and you're not entirely sure whether or not it could be PID or not PID. Mm. Um, but because some of the consequences of not doing anything about it can be quite serious, perhaps you might kind of treat... Um, whilst you're waiting for results of swabs, for example, mm-hmm. um, because you don't want to kind of leave things too long if you're thinking it could be PID. Okay. Offensive discharge just makes me think of something that comes out and then starts swearing at you, but I, I think <laughs> <laughs> uh, you mean like bad smelling and things yeah. like that. Yeah, nothing, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry about that. Um, so, um, is there... A, is there a, a, an age group more likely, therefore, to, to, to get PID of, um, of women? Yeah, so probably this is more common in a, um, a younger kind of reproductive age group, mm. um, but not completely isolated to, because, of course, it could happen actually really in anyone who is sexually active, um, so it could be occurring in paediatric patients, although less commonly, really. Mm. Um, could be occurring in an older population as well because we don't want we're not going to be kind of stereotypical mm-hmm. um, and older people are increasingly sexually active and so actually you know it's possible that they w- would acquire a sexually transmitted infection and could go on to PID. Okay. Um, so I mean you know we've just mentioned uh, STIs and PID uh, is linked with STIs. Um, is it always uh, a result of having had a sexually transmitted infection? So most of the time, yes, but not always. So they, because the female genital tract is, um, there are a lot of commensal bacteria, it's possible for some of those bacteria to translocate up into the upper genital tract and cause PID. 
and so some kind of anaerobic bacteria can do that um, and so it's not always sexually transmitted um, it's basically because it can be I suppose um, when you're talking about someone that's got PID if one thinks oh they must have an STR mm. but actually in fact that's not always the case Okay. So it doesn't mean that they've, they've got chlamydia, it would be another bacteria. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you need to definitely check mm. for all sexually transmitted infections if we're thinking about a diagnosis of PID. Yeah. But it's, if the swabs are negative, mm. it doesn't rule out PID as the diagnosis. Okay. So, uh, so you, you, you're asking about um, any unprotected sex, aren't you? you? You're taking a sexual health history there in, in that moment. If you're thinking about it, you know, are you sexually yeah. active? Are you yeah. using barrier protection, etc.? Et yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that would definitely have to form part of your history and kind of add weight to you know how likely you thought a diagnosis of PID was. Okay. And remembering the patient may not be systemically unwell, yeah, despite having a, a you know an active infection. You know. Yeah. And in fact, the vast majority of patients that have PID are not systemically ill. Um, they may not show kind of pyrexia. It, it, they may have pyrexia, but it maybe it's quite low grade, mm. less than thirty-eight. Mm. Um, so, um, how would you diagnose PID then? How is it diagnosed? Mainly by um, a clinician's suspicion of it, based okay. on the symptoms that the patient presents with, um, and then. I suppose weight is kind of added to the diagnosis from the results of swabs that you may get back. So if you um, you suspected it and a swab was positive for chlamydia, then that would really add quite a lot of weight to the fact that this is probably PID. Mm. Um, but as I said before, just to, if the swabs are then negative, it doesn't necessarily rule it out um, as a diagnosis. Um, and in fact, actually, when you're making the diagnosis, it's probably you probably more base it on the clinical picture, and then we'll start treating the patient before we've even got the results of the swabs back. Okay, is um, I mean the 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 we've we've just released uh, a take orally new nicepsis guidelines, which we, we emphasised uh, not to delay antibiotics if you're doing cultures. Um, does it matter if you've started treatment taking swabs? Uh, in PID, do you know, or is it just? Um, it if you'd already started treatment and then you took swabs, then probably it would make a difference. Yeah, the swabs may come back as negative falsely, mm. um, because you've already started antibiotics. So ideally, you take the swabs before you start the antibiotics. Sure. Um, but because, I'll, which we'll come to, I'm sure in a minute, the antibiotics cover for a range of different things. Yeah. Um, and so you may not kind of, you would have treated for it, but you may just not have detected the particular okay. organism that's caused the problem. Okay. So just because if the swabs then came back negative, but you still had that strong suspicion, you wouldn't go, oh, stop the antibiotics. No, you know. no. If you started them at that point, you've got strong suspicion, then you should yeah. be completing the course. Then. You should always really complete an antibiotic course yeah, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Because you don't otherwise we'll be developing more antibiotics. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Get the uh, antibiotic safeguarding team on me. Um, so... Um, We've mentioned antibiotics. Is that going to be the mainstay of treatment then for, for PID? Yeah, mostly. So we can divide, it depends on the severity of the disease. So for patients that have got kind of um, clinical symptoms but actually are systemically well, they don't have evidence of a tumor ovarian abscess, which is one of the complications, um, then those patients can be actually treated as outpatients normally with oral antibiotics. Um, but for patients that have got severe disease, so they're systemically very unwell, they have an abscess, those patients would probably need inpatient treatment 
treatment for sepsis as obviously required, like fluids, etc. Um, and sometimes patients need operative intervention. If they have got an abscess, then it may be that you need to think about draining that in order to actually kind of remove the focus of infection. Yeah. So that's quite unusual. Yeah. Antibiotics don't tend to penetrate a, an abscess particularly well, yeah. so if you've got a sizable one, it, it tends to have to be drained, doesn't exactly. it? Exactly, and that's quite difficult if you're trying to, if you've got someone with an active PID with a tuberovarian abscess, that's quite difficult surgery, as you can imagine, <laughs> yeah. uh, to, to deal with that. So we try not to enter the abdomen of someone with active PID unless we obviously you really have to in order to you know, resolve the symptoms. There's a learning point, don't enter the abdomen of someone with PID. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry? Unless you have to. Unless you have to. Um, so um, what are the long-term complications? complications or consequences of, of PID then so you know if, if, a, if a patient isn't treated or you know or is treated but are, are there any things that, that can follow on? So if they're treated quickly um, then you should be um, you know not having some of the long-term consequences so that's mm. why if somebody has symptoms we tend to then kind of treat them rather than just watching and waiting sure. we try and uh, err on the side of caution. Um, so the information should go down there, there shouldn't be scarring it, it should be okay. Yes, yeah. theoretically. Theoretically. But, but of course, if you've had PID, even if it has been treated in a timely manner, you just don't know how that person's sure. going to be, uh, how that body's, that patient's body is going to respond and sure. how they're going to heal. So there may still be scarring, adhesions. Okay. Um, and so they, that kind of brings us to the other long-term consequences, either in that case or if, you, if it's not treated mm. um, quickly, then you can get... Um, kind of long-term, long, like a chronic kind of picture, so chronic PID, where you have a lot of adhesions and inflammation in the pelvis that can lead to chronic pelvic pain. Mm. Um, it may be that the kind of the initial um, infection has been treated, but in fact some of that kind of ongoing inflammation continues. Mm. Um, and that can be very difficult to treat at that point, as, long, as well as like a lot of other conditions that cause chronic pelvic pain that can be very difficult to get on top of. Mm. Um, the other things we worry about is um, patients can later down the line realise that because they've had PID the tubes are now damaged or blocked and mm. so they can have issues with infertility. Um, so when, we talk, when we're taking a, um, a history from the infertility patient it's really important to ask her about previous PID, previous mm. sexually transmitted infections because you know, that can cause blockage of the tubes. And therefore, PID a risk factor for ectopic pregnancies as well. Yeah, for exactly the same reason, because the tubes could be um, could be damaged. Yeah, so right, that's another another long term potential problem: increased risk of ectopic pregnancy. Um, and so, uh, you know, for, for chronic pelvic pain, it, it, is that sort of like a management through the chronic pain pain team? Then it's it sounds like a difficult thing to then uh, manage, especially in a you're a young person and you've got this yeah. is your future yeah absolutely so it can have to go through a lot of um, you know working with our um, our pain teams mm. um, we would I mean this is a bit aside from this yeah but, um, you know trying to deal with patients with chronic pelvic pain can be very difficult depends obviously on the cause if yeah. it's related to kind of a chronic PID um, obviously we would need to make sure the, the initial uh, infection is treated but then other than kind of pain relief it can be very difficult they, they may have laparoscopies to try and take down some of the adhesions, but often you know that doesn't make long-term differences to the, the problem of pain. Um, and this probably isn't really relevant to that, uh, just as it's just popped into my head. Um, 
you know, so you know, um, uh, adhesions, uh, you know, can be brought on by uh, abdominal surgery. Um, so you know, when you think somebody's got a bowel obstruction, you ask if you ever had previous surgery. Is it similar within the the female gyne, you know, the female genital tract, can adhesions be brought on by having had previous procedures? Do you know? Um, yeah, I mean, do you mean? Like abdominal previous abdominal gynecological yeah, procedures. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, absolutely. Just like for example, cesarean sections or any kind of abdominal surgery um, could predispose to having adhesions. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, so um, as my students know, I'm a big fan of eponymous syndromes. I, I like a good eponymous syndrome. Me and, too. Uh, this one is not well. It's, it's got three names in it. So uh, what is Fitzhugh Curtis syndrome? So this is. Where somebody is classically associated with chlamydia. Do you know this, by the way? Have you ever heard of it? I do. I you do. do know. Know. Yes, He's I looking do. at me with such like inquisitive eyes. Oh, it's just you know, I'm, I'm, I'm you know. <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> Tell me more. So yeah, it's um, associated typically with chlamydia infection. Yep. Whereby they develop a perihepatitis associated with so normally pelvic inflammatory disease then associated with a right upper quadrant pain and a perihepatitis. Um, what we see kind of then typically is after the initial infection has been treated and you, you do a laparoscopy or you look inside the abdomen, you see these kind of violin string uh, mm. adhesions between the, uh, the liver and the, um, and the abdominal wall essentially. Mm. Um, so I think basically if you see that, that's kind of pathognomonic of someone having had previous PID. Mm. And um, are they symptomatic then, uh, the, the adhesions, by the, the perihepatic adhesions? Um, in the initial instance, they might have some right upper quadrant pain. Mm. Um, but actually, so that's, you might ask about that when you've got someone that's you know, come in with lower abdominal pain, vaginal discharge, asking about right upper quadrant pain is kind of adds weight to the fact that this may very well be a you know, pelvic inflammatory disease. Mm. Normally after the initial infection is gone, then they don't tend to have long-term symptoms from it. Yeah. And um, obviously, it irritates the diaphragm. It could be referred up to the the shoulder. Um, yeah, I suppose theoretically it could. I don't. I've never seen anyone with with that, but theoretically, <laughs> it's <I've> possible. <laughs> <laughs> I've just been a. I've done a, a bit of uh, very quick Wikipediaing because I'm sure there's a, and then there is actually there's a very good picture. So um, those of us li- uh, for those of you listening, if you uh, do a quick Wikipedia, other. Uh, encyclopedias are available, but there is a a picture, uh, a very nice picture there, and it does, does look a bit like violin strings. I can, I can see what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> if you want to have a look at that for Fitzhugh Curtis syndrome. Uh, okay, so um, I suppose PID is a bit like tangoing. It takes two. Uh, we've been focusing on the lady, but th- there'll be a a male partner involved in this. What about that gentleman? What 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 do we do then? So. Um We've already touched on the fact that the vast majority of cases are related to a sexually transmitted infection. And so you need to think about contact tracing um, and treatment of the male partner. Um, so you would advise that gentleman to you know, seek help through his GP or his local gum service to have a full sexual health screen yeah. and treatment as required, essentially. Um, if we had found out that you know, one of the tests from the female partner was then positive, obviously then that would impact on, on that gentleman. And otherwise, the, the gum services would then need to do full contact tracing for mm. both partners if the test came back as positive for an STI. Yeah. Um, 
And of course, important to remember that uh, STIs can be asymptomatic. So just because he feels well, oh, yeah, uh, you know, get yourself uh, checked out. And um, increasingly, um, in places like Boots and things, there's all these home kits as well. Have you ever seen them? Uh, there's uh, yeah, um, you, and you send off a urine sample yeah. and they, they send you and an email text. or a text. Yeah. yeah. And I think the same is true in a lot of kind of GP toilets, public toilets, then similar kind of kits, like for, I think they're for chlamydia, aren't they? Mostly. I think it is, yeah. It's, yeah. Um, but obviously if somebody has exposed... Nuclear amplification. Where, yeah, yeah by, they, it's done by NAT, isn't it? Yeah. yeah and the nuclear acid amplification Fish. test. Mm. Good. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Um, yeah, so um, there are these tests available, but obviously... Um, Somebody that's been exposed to chlamydia has undergone the same kind of process to being exposed to other sexually transmitted infections. Mm. And so there are lots of t- tests, you know, HIV, syphilis, gonorrhea, they can't test for. Yeah. So actually going through a GU service would then give a full sexual health screen. Good, cool. Um, so we've, um, we've informed our patient about our diagnosis. We're treating our patient uh, for pelvic inflammatory disease. Um, we've gone through contract tracing. Is there any other um, information that we need to, to give our, our patient? Um, so I would always tell her about um, the possibility. Well, we have to make sure that we test her for pregnancy. So you yes. know that she's... <laughs> pregnancy uh, can, um, <laughs> yeah. Unprotected sex can cause other things as well. It, yep. It, it, yep. Unprotected sex can cause pregnancy. Wow. Shock! <laughs> There's the learning point of That's this podcast. Um, so, <laughs> check for pregnancy, and if it's maybe too soon to check for pregnancy, then we might need to arrange a follow-up to um, to check for that. Um, we should give her advice about safer sex, um, and so, you know, using condoms, for example, preventing kind of reinfection uh, during, the pe- during the period of treatment as well, so that may be advising using, well, abstinence during the period of treatment, or if that's not possible, then condoms during uh, the period of treatment, mm-hmm. and in the and longer term as well is obviously good advice. Mm-hmm. Um, what else should we be telling the patient? Mm-hmm. Oh, completing the course of antibiotics. Yeah. So the course of antibiotics for um, treating pelvic inflammatory disease is quite a long one. So the classical one, it obviously depends on the trust that you're working yeah. in, yeah. but most trusts use a 14-day course of doxycycline, a 14-day course of metronidazole, and then there's a one-off dose of IM ketraxone at the beginning of that, yeah. and sometimes a stat dose of oral azithromycin. Wow. wow. Yeah, so they're really going to get rid of every single That is bacteria. quite the uh, smorgasbord. <laughs> Indeed. Um, so, but completing the antibiotics is yep. really important to prevent antibiotic resistance and to even make after sure you feel better. Even yeah. after you feel better, and also not drinking alcohol with metronidazole because it makes you feel very unwell. Mm. It has an anti-abuse effect. Ah, yes, it does. I remember reading that. Yes, it does. So we don't, yeah, don't drink alcohol with metronidazole. Alcohol also makes you more likely to have unsafe sex as well. So <laughs> there's probably another <laughs> warning there to think about as well. Um, uh, it's just before we pop into my mind. I think we've we've moved on a bit. But um, do you see cervical excitation in patients with PID? Is oh, yes. That, is that so we, didn't really, we didn't really talk about the examination features. No, um, so that's, there, that's they're quite important. So um, yes, if you were to examine someone with suspected PID, which I would recommend you do, following your history, mm. um, then you would you might find cervical excitation. 
because there is inflammation of the tubes so when you move the cervix side to side it will kind of pull on the annexa on each side and cause tenderness so that's kind of again quite a classical sign of mm. pelvic inflammatory disease you might find tenderness like when you palpate in the annexa as well um, so we've now examined our lady as well as, as diagnosing everything. Um, is there a follow-up required um, then? Um, some of the things we've kind of already touched upon. Um, so, you know, following her up because she might need another urinary pregnancy test, for example. Um, you might need to do test of cure. Yeah. So um, ch- checking in other, in other test swabs to make sure that they are now negative. Making sure that her symptoms are better and she hasn't got any, she's not kind of developing chronic pelvic pain. Um, which obviously might require follow-up in the gynaecology services um, and making sure as well that she's completed her course of antibiotics is all really important. That was the Take Orally Pelvic Inflammatory Disease podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter where we put up links to guidelines mentioned and you can contact us to suggest topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes. For more information on education and research opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.